0: Hello and welcome to the first episode of This Book Could Change Your Life.
1: We have a liftoff.
0: Indeed we do. So thank you so much for tuning in to this, the first episode of This Book Could Change Your Life, a new podcast about books, For those who love them. I'll be your host, James Clark, and this week, boy do we have a first show for you. I am thrilled to be joined today by John Fram, the author of The Brightlands, published by Hanover Square Press on July 7. I was lucky enough to get my hands on a copy of The Brightlands a few months ago now, and let me tell you this, if you are not aware of this book, you need to be pre-order it now, get it from your local independent bookstore, buy from a black-owned bookstore if you can, but please do add this one to your list. You will not regret it. So without further ado, let's just dive straight in. John Fram, welcome to This Book Could Change Your Life. Thank you so much. Yeah, it is an honor to have you here. I want to dive straight into the good stuff. So talk to us about The Bright Lands. Tell people who don't know why they should be reading this novel that I loved so much, I have to say. We've really been thinking about it
1: as Friday Night Lights meets Twin Peaks, which it's really true. It's a small town in Texas with a sort of, it's a dying town, but they have one very successful football team, and that's their only thing going. And the star quarterback on that team is a young man named Dylan Whitley, who seems to have everything. But when the story begins, we meet Dylan's brother, Joel, who is uh, 10 years older. They're very distant siblings, and Joel is living in Uh, Manhattan he's a very successful financial analyst and he's he's a gay man and he's out and just trying to live his best life and sort of dealing with the the creeping loneliness of being like a gay man in your your late 20s who maybe has some stuff he hasn't quite dealt with yet and he gets a text message from his brother one night um And it's clear that something's wrong with Dylan, uh, this quarterback, but Dylan's not telling him what it is, but he, he mentions that he, he hates football. And this is very much news to Joel, but Joel can't get any more out of him. And so Joel decides he will go back to Texas and see, it's his first time back in 10 years. And he's going to see if he can figure out what's ailing his brother. But pretty soon after he gets there, his brother goes missing and Joel reunites with his first girlfriend, his only girlfriend ever, this uh, girl he dated in high school named Starsha, who's now a sheriff's deputy, but is having her own suspicions that something odd is going on in this town. And pretty soon they start investigating, some kids from the high school start investigating. They start to realize that this is much, much bigger than just one football player's disappearance. And it just gets, there's an element of the supernatural and there's an element of a it and it's got like some coming of age sort of shot through it and it's very much about shame and regret and the past and how you eventually just have to confront it otherwise it's gonna it's gonna catch up to you
0: i mean i've told you multiple times how much i loved the novel i was <laughs> just you know i as i just said i read quite a lot but then sometimes mm-hmm. you find yourself you're really having to work to get through something mm-hmm. and find something mm-hmm. to enjoy about it whereas the brightlands was just I I was just blown away by how gripped I was which was just thank you yeah you know, amazing you. and you know it it touches on a lot of themes that are interesting to me as well. You know, I came from a small town. I was probably, you know, not the only gay person there, I'm sure. But at mm. that time, the only person who was out and, you know, at a young mm. age mm-hmm. and, you know, high school and all of that bullshit. And then you escape mm. and, you know, I, w- I found my way to London. And then you kind of mm. have that whole other element, which is yes. you know how you've just described of you escape one place that you think is the worst place you can possibly be. But then also you find yourself in an entirely different situation, which is challenging in its yes. own ways
1: absolutely well i was really interested in writing about that experience because i feel like it's something that gay culture is really only now becoming a bit more honest about Mm -hmm. it's like we worked so hard to just stop getting like beaten up and murdered and to be able to like you know get married which is all huge accomplishments i'm not denigrating that at all and we have hiv not i don't want to say under control but like we can treat it now like it's not a death sentence that we've made so much progress but we're now dealing with the fact that, at least for, you know, our generation, we grew up really damaged. Like, Mm -hmm. even in a supportive family, even in, you know, I've met, I think, two gay men who aren't completely bonkers for being gay, and they were, Mm -hmm. they're both super wealthy dudes who grew up in Manhattan, and they're crazy because they're super wealthy. Because it's just like, but there's not many people who are insulated from that damage, so I think that the next step of, like, queer liberation, Mm -hmm. in addition to supporting trans people and getting all this bullshit stops and just getting trans people in the family and living there. The other, the other strand of that is going to be making peace with the fact that, um, you know, we're, we're weird. We're, we're different. And we, we absorbed a lot of trauma. And that's something that I think Joel, the protagonist of the Brightlands, is very much dealing with is that you, especially for him, like he's got everything that he he thought he wanted. He's, Mm -hmm. he's, in the book it's clear that he's pretty handsome and he's got an equinox membership and he's got a you know <laughs> lovely apartment and like nice furniture and he's a very successful business person and you know you wherever you go there you are you know mm-hmm
0: I mean, it's one thing that I actually noticed because I did a quick reread before um, I knew we were going to have, well, when I knew we were going to have this conversation. Mm. And um, (laughs) it's really interesting to note how many attractive um, football players or attractive (laughs) gay gay men there are returning returning to Bentley. Um, You know, I think you described, um, what did I, I made a note of, Um, one of the football players uh, that you described as, um, oh, Luke, it was Luke, Uh, one of the Mm. the strapping sort of boy that Texas Athletics bred on a yearly basis, he only seemed to be getting bigger. (laughs) Yes! (laughs) Yeah,
1: no, it's bizarre. I go back to Texas, man, and, like, the minute you step out of an airplane in, like, DFW or something, Mm -hmm. you're, you're... not to be creepy, but your jaw just hits the floor. It's a really yeah. beautiful state. The men are just gorgeous, and it always shocks me to go back because it's a very different kind of beauty than what you see in, in New York City and like on yeah. the coast. So it's it is very a- different, actually.
0: Yeah, when I um, whenever I land in DFW, I'm always I always laugh because. There are actually people there in cowboy boots and Stetsons. Yes. Like, yeah. I always, I always just thought it was a cliche from the television, but it's true.
1: Oh, you just expect a horse to be going down like the mechanized hallway. Like it's yeah. really it's well, I mean, that's the other thing that was so great about writing about Texas and what like as much as I have problems with it politically and like as mm-hmm. much as it was frustrating to grow up there in many ways. It's, it's like France, it's so Mm -hmm. much itself, it's, Mm -hmm. you have so much material to draw from so easily, like, the hard part sometimes was scaling back the oddballness of it, because Mm -hmm. people won't believe it, but, like oh yeah, you see such kooky shit. And then all these hot dudes, it's it's kind (laughs) of amazing.
0: I've always had a great time. And the people I've met have always been great. But I imagine that when you live in a place, it's an entirely different experience, especially as a young person and knowing Mm -hmm. that you're different as well. Well, one thing that was interesting to me with this book was
1: I wanted to try, I never really found the way to do it. And I think if I ever go back to this universe, I'm really interested in the way that Texas the country and Texas the city are two completely different places. Mm -hmm. Like, I've heard the same thing about, um, you can say the same thing about a lot of states and, like, a lot of countries, but Texas is very pronounced, where Mm -hmm. New York is interesting because you've got... New York City and everywhere else, and mm-hmm. Texas—it's you've got these like little pockets of metropolitan life that feel mm-hmm. current, that feel like you're in the year 2020 mm-hmm. for all of its horrors. But like, <laughs> you, where, just say where 2019. I, 2019, we'll go, we'll dial it back, right? But where I grew up in in Waco, even though it had a population of like a hundred something thousand, it was still intensely segregated. It was very mm-hmm. small minded. Like it, it felt like the 1950s. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting how you know you can i can i go back to texas i love you know hanging out with my friends in austin but yeah you you're in a totally different you basically drive for 15 minutes and you're probably in like an alien landscape
0: yeah it's wild yeah i've only been to dallas so i can't like i said mm. i can't comment on the uh, the suburbs <laughs> or the you know the country but I, yeah it's a, I, I love it actually. dallas is I've, great dallas yeah. is bonkers so much fun
1: really good so fun. much fun And, like, the the people are super interesting. There's some huge businesses there. Oh, my God. One time I was there, a friend of mine had come to town for a circuit party, and I didn't go to the party. I was, like, young and poor, but I drove up to see him. (laughs) We were having breakfast at this little cafe, uh, and it was so chic, and I always forget the neighborhood it was in, but it was one of the really cute, like, this petite bistro, adorable, love it. And there's this woman sitting next to me who's wearing the nicest blue dress I had ever seen in my life. I mean, she just looked stunning and like she's just there for brunch by herself and I'm watching this woman just eat like a croque monsieur and I, I finally asked her I was like oh my god I love your dress and she was very gracious and very kind and I was like you know we're talking I was like so what do you do and she goes oh I work for um, a, an airline and I said being a kid from nowhere I was like oh are you a flight attendant and she <laughs> says "She says, oh no I'm, I'm the vice president of computer technology <laughs> And she was so gracious about it. I mean, that's Texas. If you had done that in New yeah. York, you would have just had, they would yeah. have ripped you a new one. But she was so gracious. She was so kind. She told me all this crazy stuff about when they converted to, you know, computer reservation, all this crazy shit. And I was like, that is what I love about Texas. But you, mm-hmm. at the same time, like, it's got this dark edge, which is something I tried really hard to capture in the Brightlands. of just this sense of, like... Even if the people aren't hostile, you're in this landscape that's big and desolate and it's so mm-hmm. huge. Yeah. You know, that's the other thing about like Dallas is so weird to drive to Dallas because you can see it coming for ages.
0: Yes, and it's just it's
1: flat. the only thing there. Yes, yeah. it's the only thing there. And then this like just it's like a mountain. Like they just these yeah. skycrapers just jut up out of nowhere. Like it's just it's drawn surreal. on a sheet
0: and someone is hanging it there. Yes. Yeah, yeah.
1: exactly. That's the perfect way to think about it. So that was something that I tried really hard to capture with the book is how Mm -hmm. strange it can be to go to
0: Texas and just, yeah, if you get turned around or you wind up outside the city, it's, it's, it's bonkers. It's incredible. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I really did notice in the novel is that you do. I mean, as I was just, like I said, I just did this reread from the beginning. um, And that's impressive. (laughs) I, there was this sense of foreboding that obviously because I knew what was coming because I'm Mm. going into it the second time I noticed a lot more of you just dropping in um, little bits and pieces to sort of set up that um, mm. That kind of foreboding quality. And, um, you know, even just like in the locker room after the, the game on the first night and there's the um, the Turner twins and there's like a sinister look between them and there's all this kind of mm. stuff happening in corners that you don't yes. know what it is. And, you know, you know that, you're, that Joel is your window into this world.
1: Mm-hmm. And then obviously
0: he's an outsider and he's coming into it. Yes. So there's going to be this resistance. and but, but Dylan seems like a very sweet kid. And, yeah. and yeah. you know, that's... And then all of a sudden he's missing. So, you know, Dylan feels like this kind of almost protective quality for his older brother. Um, But then once that's gone, you're like, okay, he's in this place on his own. Their mother is Mm. pretty, I mean, useless from my reading of it anyway. She seems Mm. just pretty Mm -hmm. oblivious to the whole thing as much as she's, you know, Mm. I think there's a point where she says no, things have got much better. And uh, mm-hmm. and then he goes to the, a game another night. I think it is with the is it Wesley? He's a priest, right? Wesley. Oh, yeah, he's, he's, a, a, he's
1: a yeah chaplain, basically.
0: Yeah, and he makes some homophobic remark about one of the cheerleaders. Yes. and and he's yes. like he, Joel thinks to himself, "Oh, this you know, it's the same old place. My my mom's totally wrong. It's not changed. Nothing's changed." Yes.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, Paulette's interesting. I I think there's. There's a very, very, very subtle twist with Paulette that maybe you'll spot on the second Mm -hmm. reread, but she's, you know, Paulette was a really interesting character to write because she was very much, you know, the opposite of my mother. Um, She's, it's just, it was interesting with her, she very much is embodying the way that you can go to one of these towns and they think it's changing because they're there Mm -hmm. all the time and they're like, oh, this church burned down and -and so-and-so broke up with his wife and all this stuff. But yeah, you, you actually return to it after living in somewhere like new york where it's like you know there's a new block every other day Mm -hmm. and you come back and you're like what is going like it it really does feel like everything is just sort of preserved in amber Mm -hmm. so i think that that's what's interesting about her character to me was how she she was very interested in her own the way her life was changing Mm -hmm. and also the way that when you have a famous son like a locally famous son your whole life becomes radically better Mm -hmm. um and then you know she's no fool though i think i think that one of the one of the interesting one of the secrets of this of this whole town is like, well, what happens if you lose the favor of this town? Because it's mm-hmm. very much that was something that you know when I came out of the closet, my mom was, ultimately got on board with it. But her first question was like, "What are the ladies at church going to say?"
0: Nah, you know what I yeah. mean?
1: You know what I mean? So it's like there's just this always. It's the dark side of that of that courtesy and that sort of openness is that then there's this expectation that you're going to be not just transparent with your cohort,
0: but that they are going to know that you better live up to their standards. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really interesting as well because, I mean, it's it's quite a common trope as someone who's an outsider in this country, and I'm not from here, so I don't... Mm -hmm. I think the American high school experience, whether I've been brainwashed by too many series of Dawson's Creek or my so-called life, like, it seems like a very, very intense... Strange situation. The English high school is just not like in any way, shape, or form. Like there's no jocks, there's no like cheerleaders, mm. there's no nerds. That you know, there's no. It's not as it seems like there's this segregation, and that might just be the television experience of it. But you know what, the you talk on the novel feeds is, into it, mm-hmm. right? Okay, so it just it self perpetuates.
1: I think it does, and I think also there's this this mindset that we that these kids, sort I don't know how it started, like, television in America definitely crystallized some of this, but a lot of it was already there, I mean, like, my grandfather was, um, uh, basically, he was a really big deal on his football team back in, like, the 40s, -hmm. you know what I mean, and, like, he, some of the stories he tells could have been lifted from yesterday, you know, Mm -hmm. like, you get to break shit, and nobody gives you trouble for it, and, like, Mm -hmm. things sort of, you're allowed to just be sort of dissolute. Yeah. and I think what's interesting to me is how I'm not sure where it started I don't think it's entirely television but yeah t- TV has definitely crystallized this form of like we are there's classes and this intense social strata and I think that it, I, I found it really fun to work in because it mm-hmm. gives you this sort of like big block this like box of archetypes and then yeah. you can start playing with them and start subverting them or finding new stuff within that material but I agree. I mean, it's it's a really intense life. Like I, I from I hated it. I actually dropped out and you can be the homeschool laws are really loose in Texas and I basically right. just like graduated high school super early by doing it at home, but mm-hmm. it's it's rough. I mean, I have friends who, you know, were on these football teams or like sort of peripheral to that world and it it's a really weird, intense life with a lot of pressure.
0: Mhm. And how about um because obviously the, there's a lot, you, you talk a lot in the novel about, um, you know, gayness and just in mm-hmm. general, um, and obviously Joel is gay and that's a big part of the story. Um, but then also, like, I think you, you know, and with everything that's going on at the minute, like race definitely seems to play a big part yes. in the novel as well. Can you talk to that and how that came to be and why that's important to you?
1: Mm. well oh god this actually is a really deep conversation what I found was interesting as I had when I started writing the book pretty quickly I knew I wanted to give it a queer hero Mm -hmm. because there was no I I really you look at queer literature especially recent queer literature there was was some interesting stuff that happened in the 80s but it's all sort of filtered out and I was like Mm -hmm. well the defining queer books are so much about passivity or being subjected to violence or being and, and, and it's difficult to say because, like, I know that some people really connect to, uh, like, A Little Life or, or Call Me By Your Name are these sort of...
0: Tragic. I don't want to be...
1: They're tragic and they're very bourgeois and they're just very passive novels. And I was like, there has to be something. I was like, where are, like, you know, the power bottoms for Jesus? Like, where are these kids <laughs> who are going to come out and just, like, really cause some trouble? Yeah. And I was... And I, so I wanted to center that on a, a narrative where I think at the beginning, people might think they're in for some of that sort of abuse porn of, mm-hmm. of a queer novel with, with a lot of shame and, and loathing. But pretty quickly, you know, by page like 60, Joel is kind of taking initiative and really trying to push this investigation forward. Mm-hmm. And what I found was really fun about that is then by centering the novel on a character who's like a capital O other, like someone who's mm-hmm. different, I could then bring in all of these other people into this investigation who are also othered. So you have women. And then, yes, specifically, um, there's a character named Jamal who's the backup quarterback on the team.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And he's he's black. And, you know, it's, it's not really stated, but it's assumed he must be pretty good at football because this town yeah. is really racist, like most Texas towns, unfortunately. And I noticed
0: that as well. And that's something I was going to ask you about because I... Understood that Jamal was black, but I didn't remember seeing it stated. But there's a couple of very subtle lines. For example, Mm. 46 minutes after Mm -hmm. almost four years on the team. Yes. So he's been on on the team for four years. They've only put him on the um, pitch or whatever you call it in this country. Yes. (laughs) Um, The field uh, for 46 minutes, and that number doesn't look like it's going to go up. Talented as he knew he was, Jamal never complained. He'd learned long ago that in Texas there were some things you just had to accept, Mm -hmm. which. that to me was like okay he is other in some form and obviously i took from that that he was black but you also um like you talk about some distant sense of Mm self-preservation um made jamal replace the phone in his pocket so no one could imagine it was a gun yes and i was like that kind of further cemented Mm -hmm. um his position and for me in my mind and i was wondering about that
1: yeah well i think that there's such a a weird thing that, like, my parents' generation did where they had to, like, identify everyone even if it was well-intentioned. Yeah. And I was like, well, what can we do? I, I mean, I've seen it done actually really intelligently in certain books where it serves almost as a plot twist to realize a person's race. Mm-hmm. And you realize that it's subverted or confirmed suspicions you already had. And so that was something I tried really mm-hmm. hard to do with Jamal. And then, actually, once the book sold, my editor really encouraged me to to lean in on this. And I'm grateful that he did mm-hmm. because in one of my last rewrites... I went through and I was like, let's really amplify what's already very subsumed. And then it starts to, because I, I, I think that what's interesting about this book to me was like, well, queerness is inherently terrifying because it sort of shakes up, like, we could call it patriarchy, we could call it the old style of American life, like, it shakes up this idea of society because it means that, oh, like, a man and a woman don't have to be together. Like, a man can mm-hmm. find his fulfillment outside of, of a nuclear family. A woman can find satisfaction outside of a man. And then once you mm-hmm. start breaking down, like, what we would consider, I think, the like, the nuclear family, this Republican talking yeah. point, there is a value to it, just in the sense that, well, we take that out, and now we have to start rebuilding everything. And one of those mm-hmm. things that very quickly comes up is this idea that, oh, well, maybe black people don't have to catch the short end of the stick every time and like mm-hmm. I, I laugh about it just because it's so bleak but it's something that i have seen over and over in texas is i think the reason people are so ruthless to gaze and segregated and just conservative places is because they embody this element of um genuinely of subversion like you are actively
0: eroding the power structures that be and which ultimately reflects i'll hold a mirror up to them then says yes. to them you will no longer exist. It's like mortality is looking have. at them in the face. Yeah, yeah
1: it's very scary. I think it, it also, you know, it's tricky. I think that something that's very strange about this country is the way that we have, there's this really unfortunate liberal notion that, that capitalism and success, we, we try to pretend it's not a zero-sum game. And we try to imagine that everyone mm-hmm. can just progress up. And it's like, well, no, actually, like the only way that, black and people of color, especially black people in America, who have been really just never... They've never been... Uh, they've never received reparations. They've never given... They've been fighting at a handicap this entire time since slavery. Some, but mm-hmm. The only way you are going to see justice and equality is if someone else loses something. And I, I get very annoyed at this very weak strand of American democratic politics that assumes like, oh, we can just benefit everyone. I'm like, well, no. The problem mm-hmm. is, is that... <laughs> so much of the power structure has been so baked in where we're just not allowed to go after the wealthy. (laughs) And I think that really when you come down to it, that's another thing that the book touches on is class in a big way. It's like this town has failed and it's basically in the palm of about four wealthy dudes. And that's Mm -hmm. something that like the town of Bentley. And that was something where, it was very consciously put in there because the only way anyone is going to get better is if those guys lose something and it's, mm-hmm. it's really savage and it's really scary. And I think it's something that nobody has quite been willing to admit yet, but I'm noticing more and more as the, the BLM, the black lives matter movement is taking root and is just becoming mm-hmm. a thing we engage with, which is great. We're now mm-hmm. finally starting to see conversations about money into the picture. And I think that that's yeah. where the justice is going to come in, but it's, It's very scary when you are a poor white person who has been fucked, not as hard by their wealthy, but you've been, like, I know so many people in Texas who, their family's been sharecroppers for hundreds of years, and then they barely, like, they scraped together the money for a house, and then 2008 hit or whatever and wiped out their savings. Like, there's a lot of people who live very tenuously, and I'm fascinated in the way that queer people can be part of this wave of change to start asking people to really examine what they've taken for granted, um, mm-hmm. one of which just being their place in life. And I, I think that there's a joy in that, but I also realize how there's a real terror. Like, if you are barely holding on, having mm-hmm. some guy show up who's, like Joel in this book, who's wealthy and doesn't need anything you're offering, it's very scary. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, there is something innately scary about that situation, which is, I mean... It... It's so hard to speak to because, you know, you mentioned the um, nuclear family, which is such a recent invention in the space and time of history of the human race. Yet we prescribe or we swear by these structures that Mm -hmm. are that were created and have Mm -hmm. been forced into being um you know if we could all just go back to the ancient greek time we'd all be like having a great time in a bath with whoever we wanted you know
1: sure i mean we would also have you know slaves though i mean like it's tricky i yeah i think that was interesting i try not to get too depressed about really anything and this sounds really cynical, and I don't mean it that way, but it's like, historically speaking, we're always sort of on these patterns of like up and down. And it's something where I feel <laughs> like all of human history is just a power. It's just a matter of power. It's a matter of yeah. always trying to figure out who's getting the power and how do we share it um, equitably. And so far, we've seen very few examples of that lasting. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, the idea of the nuclear family is so interesting, especially because I have seen. <sighs> and I'm going to sound so ignorant and you may edit this out, but it's like I have seen people discuss the way that, in a lot of what we consider traditional morality, which was very much something adopted from, it kind of got, it was partially from the Puritans in America and also partially from the bourgeois class of Victorian England who were trying Mm -hmm. to, they were aspiring to be nobility and the irony was that nobility was failing. But what's interesting Mm -hmm. is you go back and you look like I'm not an expert in English history at all, but I do know there's a lot of examples through history of very queer shit going down in the English nobility that's sort of Mm -hmm. tolerated in the same way that there's just this sort of like bland acceptance of like boys fucking at, you know, public school. Like we would call it private school, like a boarding school. Like this sort of just like low-key queerness and um, sort of just sexual oddness that Mm -hmm. the... I've seen people argue much more intelligently than me that this was actually something that was adopted by the bourgeoisie who are aspiring mm-hmm. to become as respectable as these people they were yeah. desperately imitating and wanted to be accepted by. And so they actually codified this structure yeah. that they imagined when, historically speaking the rich just do whatever they want (laughs) you know what i mean Mm -hmm. so you're, you're right like it's very odd when you look down at it and you're like honestly we haven't the nuclear family is a very new idea and we may as well get rid of it
0: now you are listening to this book could change your life One thing I wanted to talk to you about was the Stephen King comparison, <laughs> <laughs> because I I was guilty of it, and mm-hmm. you know comparisons are by their very nature something that we use to explain or to you know sure. convince. Um, but I was like very conscious of being like, well, maybe that's insulting, or maybe it's annoying, or maybe it's just not something that you know I would probably be like um no I'm not I'm just doing me and you might think it's like that but that's you so what do you think about those comparisons
1: I mean it's something where again if you're going to be a commercial writer you may as well resign yourself to it because you're going to get it all for your whole career um because you know when we sent this book out to editors right at the top it was for fans of Stephen King um Kate Atkinson, I think, who's my my other pole star. Like, I'm obsessed with her. And, um, Mm -hmm. I think Meg Abbott, Megan Abbott, she did Dare Me. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, you get compared to these people right off the top and it's very useful for editors because they can say, okay, uh, I've always wanted to acquire one of her books so maybe this Mm -hmm. is my chance. So it's, and it it just carries with you. I mean, the way you sell your book on submission is typically the way your publishing house is going to carry it all the way through. So I have been living with that forever. um, the the idea of being compared to like Stephen King and all these people but it it's never not flattering you know what I mean Mm -hmm. like I'm not gonna pretend it's not really pleasant sometimes and the other thing about it too is it's just it's I I think that you are kidding yourself if you think that you're gonna be a brand name right out the gate so you may Mm -hmm. as well enjoy if someone is gonna call you Stephen King or like well what happened then what was so bizarre is so the source of all this, there's this running joke now on Instagram um, that I call myself Stephen Queen, and like <laughs> that really started. Like I was in a, a marketing meeting for this book with my agent um, and a bunch of people at my publisher and somebody there was like, oh my God, I read Stephen King all the time as a teenager and this book really brought back all those feels and I was like, oh, that's so nice and my agent was like, and they were like, oh, do we want to position you as like the gay Stephen King and my my agent was like, oh my God, Stephen Queen <laughs> and so I like, that stuck in my head and I was like, that's cute and then I was on a live with um, Scared Straight Reads, Dennis, who I love and adore and I was, you know, we got kind of blitzed that night and it was great. Um, it, <laughs> it was a fun night and he was just like, so are you going to be this gay Stephen King? And I just said, Stephen Queen. And then three months later or something, like a long time later, Library Journal came out with their review of it. Library Journal is one of the big trade magazines. And they had a really positive review of the Brightlands. And they said, while John Fram calls himself Stephen Queen, <laughs> and like dot, dot, <laughs> and dot. Like, they're like, he deserves to be read on his own merits. And I was just like, wow, it's in print now. There's no going back.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. And they're absolutely right, because that was the reason I asked the question. is because, you know, he's a prolific writer. He's an incredibly mm. successful and wealthy writer. Mm. Is he regarded in literary circles as being a particularly good writer? I don't think so. Depends. Publishers
1: love him. I mean, publishing... And not just because he makes money. What they admire about King, what I admire about King, if we're going to really fangirl, is that he does not waste no. your time. His books, they can wobble a little in the middle just because he does get really obsessed with his characters, which, yeah. as a writer, I, like, mea culpa. Like, it's it's mm-hmm. very tempting to just have lunch with your protagonist because you love them so much. So I, I won't really give him too much shit for that, and I think that he did not get enough credit for the sure-handedness and the the, um, the capaciousness of his voice, by which I mean you sit down and you're immediately swallowed by a Stephen mm-hmm. King voice. Yeah. And there are very few writers who do that, and there are very few writers who do it well. I mean, like Philip Roth it would be like the literary equivalent of this, where it's yeah. you know you're in Philip Roth's head. And mm-hmm. that's a kind of awful place to be. I kind of like being in Stephen King's head. And you mm-hmm. know... You know, he said in his Paris Review interview that he, he sits down every day to get the plot, to keep the plot moving. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's just something that, you know, he—they're he, uneven. There are books that, at the end of the day—and he's very open about the fact that quite a few of his books, the execution kind of does—stumbles. But I think that at the end of the day, he does not get enough credit for it. this incredible pleasure, page to page, of reading a Stephen mm-hmm. King book is something that's really remarkable
0: yeah his novels are never inaccessible and the language Mm -hmm. that he he, you know his style and the language that he employs is always you know the every man can read Stephen King and feel like they are you know they know exactly where they are at all times Philip Roth probably not so much Um, yes but but no I I love him I think he's great and um, you know I agree entirely that there are some of his novels that do Um, like The Institute for example I I got to the sort of the beginning, of the second act, and I was kind of just like, mm. "Oh god!" But the setup mm. was so good that I felt yes. compelled to read, regardless.
1: Part of the reason he sells very well is because you can pick him up in a bookstore, and you're going to be hooked within about three pages. Yeah. And whether he delivers on, I I will say like his his gifts aren't always in the third act. I mean, I think some of them end really well, but the ones that really pop off for me are. His like more um, contained books. Like I don't know mm-hmm. if you've read um, *Bag of Bones*, but I think it's a yeah. masterpiece. It's it's yeah. just it's one of those where it's all first person, which is very unusual for him. But mm-hmm. because it's so married to one character, that by the time you get into that third act, I think he also wrote it over a longer period of time than some of his stuff, and that's just part of it. Like I've definitely noticed that. I wrote a book very quickly after the Brightlands and it's it's hot garbage. <laughs> like, there's something to be right. said for spending a year on a book versus, like, three months. Because I know that especially some of the early kings got written very fast. Um But Bag of Bones is just, it's magnificent because it, he keeps it contained. So when he, I agree, like, I, I haven't had time to read The Institute yet. It's currently propping up my laptop actually. <laughs> but...
0: It, it, I've got I, the I, Wolf Hall trilogy propping up my iPad right now. So, love, you know, there's I mean, greatness that, underneath all of our uh, devices right now.
1: Have you read uh, the third one yet? Uh, Wolf no, Island? I haven't
0: even read the first one. Uh, <gasps> oh, it's
1: so good. It's, that, was, that was when I I kind of wish I had read it when I was writing The Brightlands because it actually would have helped me with certain things that I had to figure out how to do in The Brightlands. But yeah, Wolf Hall is, is magnificent because it's she has a very strong voice and a really... Mm-hmm. She has an ideal protagonist in Cromwell because he's very intelligent and articulate and very much a at a remove from the world, which is always helpful. But also, she... The, Wolf Hall is genius because you don't realize time is passing, which is a really hard technique to pull off as a writer where mm-hmm. event it's event, it's event, 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 which can be very monotonous, and she breaks mm-hmm. it up because she's just such a god with language. And then there's this amazing thing in the third act where you just look back and you realize that like what felt like a series of like battles and squabbles and struggles and you know romances has now turned into this epochal moment uh, all of which is to say i that uh, you will you will love will Hall. it's one of the best things we've ever seen written
0: no i can't wait to read it and i bought the um these the trilogy um from back in the uk and had it shipped <laughs> over because the, so just, much the prettier. covers
1: were so beautiful Oh my God, um, you UK people get the best covers. You really do. I,
0: I don't know why that is. I mean, I think it's probably just... Um, it's also what you're familiar with, maybe, to me, because I just think... I look at an American cover, and, you know, the, the rule is broken occasionally, but I'm just like, mm. we, they're just better at home. Um, so that's yeah. one thing I wanted to talk to you about uh, really quickly, because I know I'm taking up, like, loads of your time. Um, but um, the cover. So... <clears throat> It's, were you involved? Was it your marketing team? What was mm. the process of creating the cover?
1: That's funny. Um, I mean, you know, it's funny. I, I shit on American covers, but I would say mine's the exception. <laughs> like, I, <laughs> no, I, I love think it's like, great. Yeah. It, I think it. it's, it, it does exactly what it, it says in the box. Um, the, the thing about covers, it's interesting. They, they do involve you to some extent. You, mm-hmm. um, basically as you're winding down, your editorial, like your, Mm -hmm. because you get about, most books go through about three rounds of edits, sometimes more, Mm -hmm. sometimes less, but generally whenever you're winding that down, your publisher will then be like, oh, do you have any ideas for the cover? And because my agent had warned me about this and I'm, you know, an A-gay from hell, I was just like, oh, let me give you a folder of ideas. (laughs) So I had all (laughs) of this stuff, but the unifying theme for most of it was, you know, the bigness of Texas Mm -hmm. and the way that that can be And, like, a sunset in Texas is just out of control. So I was just like, let's... Can we try to capture that scope? And then, literally, they sent us this cover. And it was it was one of the coolest feelings of my life because even selling the book, it has all of these anxieties attached to it because you're, mm-hmm. you're selling a book, but I was very lucky that we had a, a small auction, which is intense because you're mm-hmm. dealing with all these different offers and different contracts and all those crazy shit's going on. And so you, even though you're excited, you're like, oh my gosh, like I've got to yeah. like, hire an attorney now. But with a book <laughs> cover, you, you look at it and you're just like, oh my God, it's so pretty. Like it's just yeah. like, and it was... It was exactly what we wanted. I mean, we sent it back with, I think, three very small notes. And it was literally mm-hmm. just like, can we like intensify? like There's like a blurring effect on the football field lights. And I was like, can mm-hmm. we intensify that just to get it a little weirder, but also get some purple in? And then can mm-hmm. we just like heighten the, the blacks, you know, like darken mm-hmm. the, the color of the dark the shades? Yeah, can we get that sh- contrast better, right? And then... And also, just I think making like the title like marginally bigger, but it was it was basically mm-hmm. done. And I, I, I'm kind of apprehensive now because I I don't think you get that lucky multiple times. So I'm very curious mm-hmm. what happens as we move to other books in the future. But with this one, I'm I'm just, you know, y- you know, sometimes God just gives you a gift.
0: <laughs> it just fell in my lap. It was it was a really cool moment. Yeah, and it really does capture that sense of foreboding for me, and that kind of scope and scale of the story Mm -hmm. that you're telling, um, which I think is really interesting. I don't want to talk too much about the third act and to Mm. talk about everything that goes down on those final, you know, 20, 30, 40 pages, Mm. but Mm -hmm. what the hell and, like, how the hell and where the hell did all of that come from? Yeah. And was that always in your head to get your characters mm. to that place in the story? Or did that Mm. just come to you?
1: Mm. So... Like I said, this is my fourth book by now, basically. So I kind of know how it's going to go. And I was lucky Mm -hmm. in that regard because instead of just jumping in, I did take the time to sit down and and plot out an outline and figure out Mm -hmm. what my, what my, I I really wanted to deliver a twist because I feel Mm -hmm. like there, there is very, there are very few things. I mean there are very few literary techniques more satisfying than a well-executed plot twist because Mm -hmm. they give you that sensation that you get maybe once every couple of decades in your life of Mm. satisfaction and surprise and clarity. And Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, so this is like what I live for, what I read for really is a good twist. And so many twists are terrible because they're just about plot and they're not about character. And then, the really good twists to me, like part of the reason I think Gone Girl succeeds artistically is because its twist isn't just, oh, I bet you weren't expecting that. It's saying, mm-hmm. oh, look at how society has damaged this woman, but also how incredibly dangerous she is. And it, it allows us to acknowledge two things that we know, which is that some women are very broken and very damaged, but also there's a larger structure that's damaging women. And that's Mm -hmm. an incredibly satisfying plot twist to sneak into a... It's incredibly satisfying commentary to sneak into a blockbuster thriller. And Mm -hmm. I was like, could I do... Not to spoil it, but I was like, could I try to... What would be like a gay lesson? Like, what would be something that... Not just that I have seen in gay culture, but also what is something maybe from gay culture that applies to the broader culture and how we relate to society's gay men and so i was like well really quickly when i was kind of thinking about the book and just daydreaming about it i had um you know the i had the title pretty much immediately of the brightlands and i just i don't know why i i just i liked the sound of it because i knew i wanted to do that just in Texas, I, you drive around Texas at night and you will see these places that are just these like little spots of light out on the horizon. And it's yeah. very intriguing. It's somewhere between... It's enticing and frightening. And I always had that image in my head of, of lights on a, on a horizon. I was like, okay, the bright ones, got it. And then you're like, well, shit, what are they? <laughs> and mm-hmm. so daydreaming about that for a long time, you realize like, oh, this is... I can build a book on this twist. And once mm-hmm. I had that and I had my main character, I, I thought it would just be a straight line, and then very quickly you start adding in cops, and the add in high schoolers, and all these other things, so it did take a lot of planning and kind of care to make it satisfying, but I realized, there's a P.G. Woodhouse quote, actually, of all people, who he said that the trick of a good novel is that you find your, your two or three good scenes and you wring all the juice out of them. And I think that for this book, there's about three main like shifts that it takes. And Mm -hmm. that was like really what I, I I just spent a lot of time plotting that out and being like, okay, how can I get you just, you always are asking yourself, how can I do one better? And Mm -hmm. with this, it's like, okay, how do I get all these plot lines to converge in one place? Because if it's done satisfying, if it's done well, it's incredibly satisfying. So I was like, let me, Mm -hmm. let me give it my best shot.
0: Well, in my opinion, you definitely did. And um, I've been singing this book's praises for the months since I read it. So yes. when I'm really excited for people to read it and to
1: hear what the wider world thinks about it. I mean, my Instagram has been popping off the last couple of days. So people like like finally yeah. reading it for, well, because a lot of people are reading it for pride and stuff, which is great. And it's, it's very satisfying to hear, you know, straight ladies in Texas telling me like that mm-hmm. they enjoy it or something. Like that's a very, that's a cool feeling. I did not expect yeah. that, honestly, when I wrote it. You know, God, if there's any, like, debut writers out there listening, or people writing that first book, like, really cherish that that first year as much as you can. Like, I don't regret... I don't miss being, like, broke. Because I was really broke when I wrote The Mm -hmm. Bright And it made me enough money to, like, get me, like, a savings account for the first time in my life. And, like, that's all very nice. But it really does come with a price. So I I would say, Mm -hmm. like, there are there is there sort of a, a loss of innocence that comes when you publish a book. So right. really cherish that first couple of times. Cause like nobody, there will never be another time in your life when your email is not exploding with obligations.
0: Yeah. That's the thing. It must be really hard. Cause everyone sort of wants a piece of you, don't they? Or you, you feel like you have to be doing every single thing you possibly can to, you know, make if you're sure lucky, your book is a success or.
1: Yeah. If you're lucky. I mean, it, it also, I I, I do not want to sound ungrateful. I am so blessed and like, getting to do stuff like this is so much fun. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah, no, I mean, I think they look forward to selling a book if you're, you know, out there writing a new one. But, you know, do try to appreciate as much as you can this process of writing your first one because it really can be, like, your baby. And -hmm. there's never going to be another one like it. So even if you're writing during COVID or have a book coming out soon, just... It's, it's, it's all going to be okay. Like I'm finally making peace with that because it was a really hard process to go from being this like nobody that nobody's ever heard of. And I'm by no means famous, but having any kind of attention put to you after that process is, it takes a long time to acclimate, but it's, it's all going to be okay.
0: No, it will be. And I can imagine it must be really strange, just weird. Um, It is. It is. Yes. (laughs) One more question. Adaptation. It has to happen, Right
1: oh um you know COVID has hit the brakes on basically everything in hollywood right now yeah um especially a book like this which not to spoil but has a lot of sex and violence where mm-hmm. there's a lot of questions of how that sort of stuff is going to be filmed um yeah but I, I i can tell you that we
0: have some really exciting news to announce when the time is because wow. right. it's in my head i can see it already Um, and I would just think it would be such, um, you know, someone would be stupid not to turn this into something that people can watch on television. Yeah. My agent, my accountant completely
1: agree. Um, (laughs) yeah, it's, but yeah, no, Hollywood is, um, Hollywood's its own beast. Mm -hmm. I'm very blessed. I have a really great, um, film to TV agent and a really great literary agent. So, Mm -hmm. uh, I've been able to meet such incredible people. So yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to talk Hollywood, uh, hopefully soon actually
0: incredible well thank you john fram for joining me on this book could change your life oh my god thank you the Brightlands is available july 7 and it's published by hanover square press buy it now you won't regret it if you enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more hit follow or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and you can find us at thisbookcouldchangeyourlife.com on Instagram at This Book Could Change Your Life and on Twitter at This Book Podcast. Thanks for listening and happy reading.